a pleasure to welcome Barbara Fakir to, uh, to Oxford. Uh, Barbara and I go back a long time, sort of particularly on the uh, neuroscience, MRC Neuroscience Mental Health Board. Uh, and uh, it's the first time we've uh, got, you to, got you here. But anyway, uh, just a few words. So she did her first uh, degree in the States and then uh, came over to, uh, to Cambridge. Uh, and undertook a PhD in experimental psychology and then a diploma in clinical psychology. Uh, and she is now the professor of clinical neuropsychology in, uh, based in the Department of Psychiatry at Cambridge. And also, as you can see uh, there, in the uh, Behavior and Clinical Neuroscience Institute. Uh, and she's also a consultant, honorary consultant clinical psychologist at Allenbrook's uh, Hospital. So as you can see by this bit, I, Barbara is really a mover and shaker in cognitive neuroscience and all aspects like that. She's got a very broad uh, interest in cognitive um, uh, psychopharmacology, in uh, neuroethics, in neuropsychiatry, neuropsychology and imaging. Um, she's been involved in uh, developing new test uh, techniques for assessing patients. So many of you will have used Cantab, which she was one of the co-inventors of, which is a computerized neuropsychology um, uh, method. Uh, and so, I mean, she gave me, I think, three or four different titles, but uh, one of the things that she's particularly interested in is human enhancement, and I thought it'd be really good for everybody to hear her view. So, Barb, without further ado, thank you very much for coming. Thank you. Great pleasure to be here, and it's great to see you again, Chris. So, as we have this global society now, and obviously uh, I've been actually looking a lot at the future of work and how that's going to be, and people are more and more interested in, in human enhancement, and these are healthy people, of course, that I'm talking about. Most of you in the room here will be concerned with improving and restoring function in people, but of course other people are very interested in enhancement and going above that level. So I'll be talking speaking to all of that uh, in this talk. So the talk really is in three sections. In the first section, we'll talk about the use of cognitive enhancing drugs to improve cognition in patients with neuropsychiatric disorders. And I've done a lot of work on Alzheimer's disease, but also attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and uh, depression in other areas as well. And then, um, as a psychopharmacologist and having a psychopharmacology laboratory, we uh, use drugs as tools to understand the neuromodulation by neurotransmitters of different cognitive processes such as attention, learning, memory, planning, and so forth. And then finally, uh, I'd like to talk about the uh, neuroethical issues and also the impact on society of the increasing lifestyle use of these smart drugs by healthy people. So as Chris said, I, I do a lot of neuroscience and mental health policy. Some of it, of course, has been with him. We uh, reviewed the MRC when he was chair of the Neuroscience and Mental Health uh, for, uh, Board for the MRC. We actually reviewed them uh, policy at that time, but we're reviewing it again now. Um, but I've also worked on the uh, Foresight Project on mental capital and well-being, and uh, and. Some, some more recent uh, ones, Grand Challenges in Global Mental Health. But all of these recent policy pieces have really focused on the fact that we need early detection and early effective treatment. And the funny thing is, we know about this for physical illness. We always think that, you know, for cancer and everything else, we have to get in there and detect it early and treat it early, and that's the best outcome that we'll have. But for some reason, um, we've let people become ill uh, with such things as depression, and it becomes chronic and relapsing and lifelong in many cases. So we're now realizing that we have to move to uh, early detection, early effective treatment, and eventually, hopefully, prevention, so we can stop this cycle of just chronic relapsing conditions and pe affecting people's functionality and their well-being and also the cost to governments. And um, this, I worked on the UK government foresight project on mental capital and well-being. And that was to address two big problems that the UK government had. 
And the first one was that um, we had an aging we have an aging population, and of course, age is the biggest risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. So they were concerned about the number of people who would be uh, developing Alzheimer's disease and what we would need to do. So they wanted to know how could we improve our cognitive function throughout our lifespan, and how could we keep ourselves functioning better for longer. And the second big problem that they had was uh, hits to, to business in terms of the cost to business of days lost at work to depression. So people were getting depressed, uh, they were absent from work, and even when they came back to work, they might have what was called presenteeism, so they weren't as productive at work as they should be. So these were the two big problems, and we did a, a, a very, I think, original lifespan analysis of the promoting factors for good mental capital and well-being, um, and those are such things as good education and good family support and so forth. And then we also looked at detractors for uh, good um, mental uh, capital and well-being, and those are such things as stress and also substance abuse. And so we we really brought in on this project the idea of biomarkers, um, resilience in the face of stress, and these very important concepts that we're still uh, wrestling with and we still don't fully understand, but uh, hopefully we will in the future. And I always annoy my psychiatric colleagues by saying that basically psychiatric disorders are disorders of cognition. They're all about the way you think. And so they really are, and, and certainly in depression this is definitely true because we know that the Beckian ideas of how you might treat uh, <coughs> negative intentional biases and uh, these negative automatic thoughts or ruminations uh, all have to do with your cognitive uh, cognition and the way that you think. But we also now know that many of these um, neuropsychiatric disorders are neurodevelopment, neurodevelopmental in origin. <coughs> So they have their prodromal stage in childhood or adolescence. And in fact, 75% of mental illnesses start before the age of 24 years, and 50% start before the age of 18 years. So it seems to me a no-brainer that we should be actually looking at children in the early stages of development to see that they're having uh, good cognitive development and good sense of mental well-being early on so that they don't develop something and have it for many years and then we notice in when they're adults and try to treat it at that stage. So I think we need to work more at early detection and, and looking at these children earlier on. Well, what are these cognitive manifestations <coughs> that people show uh, with these neuropsychiatric disorders? So the things like attentional biases, the, what we call aberrant learning, learning the wrong things, attaching salience to something that's not important their memory impairments, and their dysfunctional reward systems, and importantly, lack of what we call top-down cognitive control by prefrontal cortex over the emotional brain and over your abilities to uh, inhibit your responses and not do impulsive acts. And it's perhaps not surprising that we have these problems of lack of top-down cognitive control because we now know that our brains are still in development uh, right into late adolescence, early young adulthood. So really up to 24, 25 years of age. And our frontal lobes are coming in at the, at the latest phases. So it's not surprising that external environmental factors such as substance abuse or uh, psychological or physical abuse will have a greater impact at that stage when your brain is in development. So we need these cognitive enhancing drugs to keep, treat the cognitive disabilities of people with uh, mental health disorders and brain injury. And uh, this is really just to point out that um, all these different disorders, and I work with all these groups, I work on ADHD, we have an adult clinic at Anbrooks Hospital that um, I helped start and um, now still are involved in with Dr. Ulrich Muller. I work with patients with schizophrenia and I work on Alzheimer's disease. In fact, uh, with Simon Lovestone, I'm involved in a project now. Uh, both, we just finished one with Alzheimer's disease and now we're working on the prodromal stage, mild cognitive impairment. And um, 
you can see the expense of these disorders. And interestingly, disorders such as depression, anxiety, um, their burden and their cost and also their frequency is much greater than many of the physical disorders that we spend a lot more time and money on, such as the um, cancers and heart disease and so forth. So uh, I don't have to convince you that we need uh, cognitive enhancing drugs for Alzheimer's disease because obviously it's a dementia and people will know. Um, but it is somewhat surprising that um, you know we don't treat and we don't diagnose as frequently as we should. So David Cameron pointed out in his 2012 speech that only about 40% of people with uh, Alzheimer's disease that, uh, with a dementia are diagnosed. And it's, it's important that we don't diagnose more because if we do the cost-benefit analysis, we can see that early effective treatment, even with the cholinesterase drugs, the current treatments we have, like Aricet, still have a tremendous impact on these patients' well-being and also their ability to function in their own homes. So if you treat with a cholinesterase inhibitor early on in Alzheimer's disease, you prevent and delay people going into institutionalized care. So, and most people do want to stay in their own homes, so it's very beneficial for them. And I did some of the first proof of concept studies on those drugs, the uh, uh, cholinesterase inhibitors. I worked with the company Shire when it only had about two people in it. And uh, we started one of the first memory clinics in order to detect early and to be able to treat people early with these drugs. And eventually, of course, we'll have the neuroprotective drugs, and then we really will want to treat very early on because we want to preserve the um, person before there's too much brain damage. So we really will need to halt the disease process early when people are still functioning well and have a good quality of life. Well, schizophrenia. So schizophrenia actually affects people as late adolescence, young adulthood, that's when most of it starts. So, and many people will have it lifelong. So if we can actually enhance cognition, we might be able to ha help people, you know, uh, stay in work or go back to university. So many of you will know about the psychotic symptoms in schizophrenia, and those are the hallucinations and delusions. So you hear voices or you have unusual thoughts. Those are rel relatively well treated by what, by what we have uh, now, which is the antipsychotic medication. And we can treat those symptoms reasonably well. But schizophrenic patients have two other problems, and, and one of them are cognitive problems. And that's usually why when people get diagnosed when they're uh, at school or university and they drop out, that they're unable to come back or they have to stop work. So if we could treat the cognitive symptoms, we might get a much better outcome. And the third problem that they have is motivational. So they have these things called negative symptoms, and they have a amotivational state. And I'll talk a little bit later about how we might address that to some extent. Um, but that, this would be very good if we could uh, help people. And then attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And this is the most prevalent of the neuropsychiatric disorders in childhood. And many of you will be familiar with uh, ADHD because it is so common and you hear about it quite a lot. But what you might not know is that about 50% of people or more still have it as an adult. So we used to think that it somehow miraculously disappeared in everybody. It, you know, adolescents, but now what we know is they just tend to end up in prison because they were left untreated. And so uh, we do know that if you have severe ADHD as a child, that um, if you don't treat the prognosis, it's very bad. You might be uh, drop out of school, you might have substance abuse problems, you might end up in uh, the criminal system. So it's very important to treat with these uh, drugs such as Ritalin, uh, um in order to improve uh, cognitive function in these people so they can attend well at school and concentrate. And of course, if you have mild ADHD, you can get by with a cognitive behavioral treatment. That's absolutely fine. But on the severe end of the spectrum, you will need a drug treatment. What I was going to say is Ritalin is one of the uh, success stories for, psychiatry, for psychiatry because it does work <coughs> quite well in about 70% of people 
with ADHD, but there's still a portion of people that either can't take it because of the side effects or don't seem to respond to it very well. So we could even use better treatments there. And of course, the stimulants uh, like Ritalin and methylphenidate have abuse potential. So people are concerned about drugs with abuse potential using them in children. Well, I'm going to focus, of course, on pharmacological ways of boosting our cognition, enhancing cognition. But I always like to point out that this two of my favorite ways is through physical exercise. And as you know, that uh, helps with neurogenesis. And there's very good evidence for that. It's one of the best ways to boost your cognition. Um, and, and, um, sorry, you can see that down here. But also education. So learning new things is, is great for your brain too. So I always uh, promote lifelong learning. I think it's incredibly important. Um, so I like to point out there are these other ways of, of boosting our cognition besides through drugs. Well, in my laboratory, I work with all of these drugs. Um, in fact, uh, I've done a number of studies recently uh, with James Rowe um, in, in Cambridge, where we've been looking at uh, people with Parkinson's disease who have impulse, impulsive behavior to see if we can treat that with atomoxetine. But um, all these drugs have been very useful. So as we mentioned, methylphenidate Ritalin, which um, uh, increases the synaptic concentration of dopamine and noradrenaline by blocking their reuptake. And this, of course, is the most common treatment in this country. When you're using a drug for ADHD, it's nice approved. We have a more recent treatment, that's atomoxetine. And um, this one is more selective for noradrenaline. And the importance of that is, of course, because it doesn't affect dopamine in this way, this, this drug has no abuse potential. And then there's modafinil, which is provigil. And, um, this is a, a, a relatively <coughs> new drug which is used to treat narcolepsy, which of course this, this audience probably mostly knows is excessive daytime sleepiness. Uh, for those of you do, who don't know, I say that if you doze off while I'm speaking, well maybe it just isn't a very good talk, but if I doze off while I'm speaking, that's <laughs> narcolepsy. <laughs> and we're not really sure how it exerts its cognitive enhancing effects. But it does seem to, uh, like these other drugs, it has effects on uh, uh, dopamine and noradrenaline. And also, it, it affects glutamatergic uh, mechanisms. So it might be through glutamate. So I just want to show you how we might assess cognition in the laboratory. Because you probably wonder, well, how do we actually test whether somebody's uh, enhanced cognitively? Um, so I'm going to show you working uh, a test of working memory. And this is, you heard about the CANCAB battery from Chris. I'm the co-inventor of these computerized tests. And um, so the reason I'm showing working memory is it's a very important um, form of, of uh, cognition. And I don't know, for this audience, like, psychiatrists will know all about the research domain criteria. But people are getting a little bit fed up with the um, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association, DSM-IV and DSM-V, because they say that, you know, what we do is we just chuck in all these things, you know, like a checklist of this, a checklist of that, and then we say, well, if you've got four out of five of these, or if you've got five out of nine of these, then you have schizophrenia or something like that. And people have pointed out that you can actually have uh, no overlapping symptoms, but still have the same diagnosis with these kinds of checklists. So we need to get closer to the neurobiology of what's happening. And we need to really, if we're going to find a good target for treatment, we really need to look at more specifically of what might be distributed in the normal population, what might have a genetic basis where we can find good targets for treatment. And working memory may well be one of these. And the reason I think it's very important, a number of reasons, but first of all, it's related very strongly to fluid intelligence, which is what I call creative intelligence, but also to uh, crystallized intelligence. And that's what's measured by the Wechsler Adult Intelligence Scale. That's your IQ. So it's, measured, it's related to both of these. Um, also, very importantly, uh, it actually has been shown to be a, a better indicator of future achievement than even your IQ is. And then, um, importantly, it's, a, a, it's a, a sort of component of almost all the higher cognitive 
functions that we have, the higher level executive functions. So if we're doing planning or problem solving, a component, a subcomponent of that will, will be working memory. So it's embedded in all these higher level cognitive processes that we do like planning and problem solving. And then finally, from, from my point of view, it's affected in many neuropsychiatric disorders, including ADHD and schizophrenia. So uh, we uh, did this invention, and as I said, we, we actually have had a lot of success with early detection of the type of memory problems that you see in Alzheimer's disease, the episodic memory problems. Those are sort of trying to remember where you parked your car in a multi-story car park, or trying to remember where you left your keys when you chucked them around somewhere in your house, and when you're going out again and you need them, where, where you left them, that's episodic memory. So we now have a version of this uh, which runs on an iPad, um, for testing Alzheimer's patients, and it's for a GP surgery. So you get a green light, compares your data to norms right away, takes 10 minutes for the episodic memory test, and you get a green light if you're fine, you get an amber light if this should be monitored and looked after, and then you get a red light if the abnormal scores and you need following up. But um, I'll be showing you the test for working memory. So it's very simple. I say to you, I want you to search through these red boxes to find blue squares. And when you find a blue square in a red box, put it over here in this column. But the important thing to remember is once you find a blue square in one of these red boxes, the computer will never hide it in that box again. So never go back to that box again. And, and you do, if you do, that's an error. So it's on an iPad. All you have to do is touch it. And you open the box like that, nothing in there, nothing in there, nothing in there, nothing in there. Oh, something in there, good, okay. So we found that, <coughs> we take it and move it over here. And now we start our search again. But the important thing is never to touch that box again because you, you, if you do, that's an error. So you start the search again. And people usually do this in a strategic way. It's a strategic working memory test. And we know to skip over this box here and if we touch it, it's an error, so we skip over it. And that's how you do. It's just so simple, but that's working memory. And what you see here is that children and adults with ADHD are very impaired on this test compared to control subjects. So they make many more errors when doing this test. And what you can see here is that methylphenidate, or Ritalin, improves uh, the performance on this test in uh, adults with ADHD, but also you can see in healthy volunteers, and these are actually Cambridge undergraduates, so they're functioning quite well, but they, they still do better. And of course, we can put people in a scanner so that we can look at the neural network involved while they're performing this working memory test. <coughs> and what we can see with Ritalin is that not only do you get a better behavioral performance, better cognitive performance, but you also get this increased efficiency in the neural network that's involved in performing the uh, working memory test, which importantly includes dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex. So basically, you get a better <coughs> performance and your brain doesn't have to work as hard when you're doing it under Ritalin. And we did a study recently where we just looked to see, and we saw that the drug action is really no difference in the drug action between ADHD patients and healthy volunteers. We also found that uh, modafinil improves working memory, and you can see that in these uh, patients with first episode psychosis. Now, first episode psychosis is, is more or less the prodromal stage for schizophrenia. Some people will actually develop bipolar disorder, so not all of them go on to develop schizophrenia. And fortunately, some people will resolve. So not all of these people will turn out to have schizophrenia, but the majority will go on to develop schizophrenia. And the idea here is we have a cameo service in Cambridge, so we try to pick up these people early. And so young people who have unusual experiences and think that they're hearing voices and, and getting disturbing thoughts can, can come in early. And so uh, they're diagnosed as having psychosis, but you know you have to have that for a while before you would get a diagnosis of schizophrenia. 
But you can see if you, we take modafinil, we add it on to their antipsychotic medication, it improves their performance on this test. So this is a way we might be able to improve their cognitive function. And of course, I'm just showing you this because it does the same for healthy volunteers. Now this task uh, is stop signal reaction time. And it's one of the most sensitive tests for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And I often describe it as, um, imagine a, a boy with uh, ADHD kicks his football out into the road. He'll go charging out into the road after it, not bothering about where the car is coming. But a, a, a child without ADHD might go to the edge of the road and look to the right, look to the left, and make sure it's safe, and then go and retrieve the ball. And in this particular test, I often describe it as, suppose that you know a child sees a ruler, and the child has ADHD, and he starts whopping the kid who's sitting next to him over the head, whop, 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 with the ruler. And the teacher shouts, stop. Is he able to stop, or does he keep bopping away? And that's really what this test is measuring. Can you inhibit your responses? So it's, uh, it's, it's uh, on inhibitory control. And so what happens is, these arrows come up on the screen at some point to the right and some point to the left, and you have a button on the right and the left, and you're just told to press as quickly as you can as you see these. Press the right button if you see something pointing to the right, left button if something goes to the left. And you just keep doing this. And as you're doing it very, very fast, all of a sudden you hear beep. When you hear that beep, you have to not press. You have to stop and inhibit. And that's all it is, very simple test. But what you can see here is that children with ADHD are very bad at doing this compared to healthy boys. But when they're on their medication, they're much, much better. So it really brings them right into the same range as, as healthy boys. So it's very effective in stopping that. And again, atomoxetine uh, is able to um, uh, improve response inhibition, uh, as you can see here. Interestingly, atomoxetine doesn't really affect spatial working memory very much. So it does seem that, and in, in that this accords with, with what uh, clinicians say, because they often say that they find that Ritalin is a more general and better, broader treatment, but it's probably because kids have not just problems with response inhibition, but also problems with working memory. So Ritalin would be better under those conditions. And you can see that atomoxetine uh, improves response inhibition in, um, in healthy volunteers as well. So again, these drugs are not acting in some different way in patients and in healthy volunteers. You're getting the same type of effect. You're getting the enhancement and improvement. And modafinil also will improve response inhibition in healthy volunteers and adults with ADHD. And you can see that in these graphs here. Now, um, in my book, which I'm going to plug, um, <laughs> I talk about hot and cold cognition, and I don't have a lot of time to talk about it here. But um, we have uh, cold cognition, which is our sort of planning, problem solving, all that type of thing. And then we have a hot cognition, which is kind of our emotional um, and social cognition. And I often, when I'm talking to business people, I often say, uh, if you're making a business plan, um, that's kind of cold cognition, and you're looking at the business plan, and somebody's had to figure out what am I going to make, how much is it going to cost to make it, who's my market, who am I selling it to, what am I going to price it at. That's all sort of cold calculation. But then many of you will have seen Dragon's Den, and you get these people coming in and pitching to venture capitalists, and all of a sudden, you know, these people who are the venture capitalists are listening to this pitch, and they suddenly get this gut reaction oh, that person knows what he's talking about. His business is going to be a success. And they go for it. It's kind of, so it's a very different uh, kind of cognition. And when you look at decision making, you can actually see that with cold cognitive decisions, um, you frequently get this activation in the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex and the um, network associated with that, whereas with this hot cognition, uh, areas that are activated are like the orbital frontal cortex and, and the network associated with that. So uh, this just goes to show that modafinil also has effects on heart cognition, so the ability to recognize the expression, the emotional expression on a face. And we're 
most of the CANTAB tests that we talked about were the ones that you were doing, and then mostly for uh, what we call cold commission, but we've now recently, through with help from the MRC, worked together with people in Manchester and Cambridge uh, and UCL and King's to develop uh, emoticon, which is for hot cognition. So we'll be able to measure these uh, emotional processes more objectively. Well, this is just to show that there are a lot of uh, new cognitive enhancing drugs in development. Um, Pfizer has a very promising D1 agonist, and there's many other drugs coming up, and we need these drugs, especially the ones that are going to modify the disease process and halt the disease process in Alzheimer's disease. So it's important for um, you know, neuropsychiatric disorders that we have this new drug development. As many of you know, will know, the pharmaceutical industry, unfortunately, many of them have left the area of psychiatry, although they're still staying in what they call neurology, which is Alzheimer's disease at that point here. So this is the move into the last part of my talk, which really has to do with the increasing lifestyle use of these cognitive enhancing drugs by healthy people. And um, what you can see here is that uh, methylphenidate has uh, increased in prescriptions in the, in the USA. And when you do student surveys in the USA, you, you frequently get as, as many as 20% of students on these cognitive enhancing drugs. And some have been up as high as 25% or 30% of students say they're on these drugs. And this uh, professor says that, um, you know, the, the people, these students find the drugs enticing, they can get their academic work done quicker, do it in a shorter period of time. So those students have put off doing the work and or aren't so strong academically, they use it to counteract or remedy their problems. But this is just to show that the same type of effect is happening here. There's a rise in prescriptions of methylphenidate in, in England from 56% in the past five years. <coughs> and the Care Quality Commission, when they reported on this, um, attributed it to sort of three separate things. One is that we're more likely now to identify childhood ADHD, and that's a good thing because people were going without treatments and now they have treatment, so it's good in that sense that they are being identified. The second thing is that they've pointed out that there's, you know, people are now <coughs> identifying that adults have ADHD and need, need treatments because if they don't get the treatment, they won't be organized, they won't get to work on time, they won't be able to hold down jobs and so forth. And when we started our clinic, we were actually the second clinic in the, in, in the UK, and now there are 40 adult clinics, so um, that has changed. But if you look at this third reason, it's due to the potential for diversion and misuse. So obviously this is the smart drugs being used by healthy people. And here are just some of the surveys to show you the kinds of data that come up. And, um, uh, you can see this This one's quite recent, and this is in the um, Swiss Federal Institute of Technology, and they came up with about 8%. As I said, this is about the average that you come up with from university surveys. They have many of them. Um, there's been a few informal surveys uh, in the UK, and, uh, and after we did, I, I did a paper called Professor's Little Helper, um, which was published in Nature. And uh, it was because I went to a meeting and I was uh, in Florida and I was tired and I did a you know, late afternoon slot and I said to my American colleague, um, you know, I've got jet lag, why didn't they let me speak in the morning because I'm really tired and everything. He said, would you like some of my modafinil? And I said, oh, you're using it? And he said, yeah. So then we went out and had a sort of tea and coffee a bit later, so I started asking around. And, some people were using Adderall, which is amphetamine salt. Some people were using Ritalin. Some people were using Modafinil. And so I, I sort of started a, you know, a little survey of these people, what they were doing and why. And one professor at Oxford who was uh, um, in the philosophy department was using it every couple of weeks just to get a good day's work in and so on. <laughs> so then Nature did their own online survey, and they got 1,400 respondents, and 20% of them were using uh, cognitive enhancing drugs. And if you look at modafinil, is in this country, it is for narcolepsy. In the United States, they also allow you to use uh, modafinil for uh, sleep disturbance due to shift work. 
because they found that modafinil reduces accidents in shift workers. But you can see here the amount of this drug that's being sold, and most it's been estimated in these studies that 90% are being used off-label by helping people. So uh, there has been a lot of interest in, in it in the new media. In fact, I've got somebody coming tomorrow who, who from the BBC who uh, wanted to be tested, and I said, well, you know, I can't just you know give you give you modafinil. I have to put. And she went to a study and so forth. Oh, don't worry about it. I'm already on it. <laughs> so, uh, but anyway, uh, so I've been quite interested in why why are people helping people using these drugs? I mean, you know, why aren't they you know, boosting their cognition through exercise or something else? And of course, uh, it comes up with the increased performance competitive edge. You know, uh, when I talked about this type of issue in neuroethics in America at the American Psychiatric Association, uh, Nora Volkow invited me there to speak. I had psychiatrists come up afterwards and they said, I'm so glad you talked about this because I have these parents who come and they say, my child has ADHD, they need this drug. And, and the psychiatrist will say, well, it's not that severe. They could have a cognitive behavioral program that could help set something up, you know. And, and but they keep pushing, the parents are actually pushing that the children go on to these drugs. Uh, and the psychiatrists are resistant, but sometimes, you know, it's quite difficult. <coughs> so, uh, and it's been pointed out in the Academy of Medical Sciences report that even a small 10% improvement in a memory score could lead to a higher A-level grade or degree class. And then many people are taking it to counteract the effects of jet lags. Most of my academic colleagues I find are taking it for <coughs> purpose and to stay awake for longer periods of time. Apparently, in the city now, it's taken over from cocaine as being the sort of drug of choice for staying awake and alert, which <laughs> something to be said for it there. Uh, I must say that modafinil to date has not been shown to have abuse potential, so um, it's obviously from the point of view of uh, that, it's a, 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 a useful cognitive enhancing agent. Um, and then finally, one thing that we looked at, which we were very interested in, because I had heard students often say, I've been having trouble getting down to studying for exams, or I've been, you know, I've been putting off studying for exams, or writing this long essay. And, um, and then they say, I find it much easier under the, you know, Ritalin or, or Modafinil, it's usually Modafinil they're talking about, to get down and do this task. And um, so I actually, those tests that you just saw, that you just sort of did, I asked them to just rate how, how pleasurable did you find that. So all they had to do is after they did each one of those tests, they just rated how pleasurable. You could see under placebo it was all right, but it wasn't that great. But look under metaphenol, suddenly very pleasurable. So it's also in, in, um, enhancing task-related motivation. Now this is not a general effect. So if you say, you know, just in general, are you feeling much happier or anything else? They, there's not, no, and they can't even tell necessarily that they're on the drug or off the drug, because these are all double-blind, placebo-controlled studies. But when you ask them to rate the, how they enjoyed the task, you can see that it's much higher. So this is really a specific task-related motivation. It's not a general uh, enhancing effect in that sense. And um, I won't go into pharmacogenomics, but I think it's a very interesting issue for these drugs because obviously at some stage, you know, in the future, we were talking about future scoping. You know, maybe we'll all be going into, uh, you know, Costa or Starbucks and saying, I'll have a, a latte with a shot of modafinil in it. And then I'll say, well, let me see your gene chip. I might want to check if you're this is suitable for you. And we, we actually looked at, um, with John Groiser, who was my PhD student then, we actually did a study where we looked at uh, ecstasy users who took ecstasy on a chronic basis, because we know that um, you know serotonin is very important for your mood regulation, and that the SSRIs, the selective serotonin reuptake, is boost serotonin, and our treatments, our antidepressant treatments for people who are depressed. So we thought, well, if you take ecstasy chronically and you're lowering the serotonin in the brain, um, perhaps you're making yourself depressed. So we actually uh, looked at these uh, ecstasy, chronic ecstasy users, and what we found was that um, 
for a group of them, they were depressed, but that those were the ones that also had the esophageal of the serotonin transporter gene. So there you had a specific interaction of the genetics with the drug itself. So we'll know more about that in the future, and it will not only help us with, um, well, hopefully with better treatments, but also with reduced side effects, which is very important. So um, I'm the president of the International Neuroethics Society, as, as uh, Chris said, and, and you know, neuroethics is actually the study of the ethical, legal, and social questions that arise when scientific findings about the brain are carried into medical practice, legal interpretations, and health and social policy. And so uh, we have our meeting attached to the Society for Neuroscience, so many of you might go to that. We're an official satellite of them and we're meeting in San Diego next year, uh, just on Thursday and Friday, just before the um, SFN meeting in San Diego. But um, I think it's very important that as a society we consider such things as which forms of cognitive enhancement we find acceptable, and for which groups, and under what conditions, and by what methods we want our society to flourish and will we take all members of society with us, or just a few? So I'll just quickly talk about what might be beneficial, because there are a lot of benefits to these drugs. Um, they might be better cognitive enhancing drugs, as I'll be showing you, than some of the current ones like caffeine, coffee. And we might want to use them in certain people where we need to keep them awake and alert. I mean, one thing that we looked at um, in the Joint Academies report, when we did Human Enhancement in Future Work, was people, um, these bus drivers who were driving children back at night from the continent and they fell asleep and these kids were killed. So, you know, if you can keep people awake and alert and save lives, that could be good. Or save accidents, serious accidents. Or in case of the military, of course, um, save the death of yourself or your colleagues. So, uh, I'll talk just a bit about, um, I, I worked with Lord Aradazi on a study and he's the surgeon at Imperial College in London. And he was concerned because uh, his surgeons, of course, have to operate at night when accidents are occurring. They do shift work. And um, he was finding that to stay awake and alert for these long operations, they were taking lots of coffee, caffeine, and they were getting tremor, hand tremor, which many of you will know who are coffee uh, users. is can happen quite frequently if you take too much coffee. And uh, so he was thinking that maybe modafinil might be a better awake alerting agent. So what we did was we sleep deprived doctors overnight, and then they came in and they did some of our tests and some other other things. And we gave them modafinil or placebo <coughs> in a double blind uh, double blind placebo controlled study. And what you can see is that modafinil actually made doctors less impulsive. But it also improved their um, problem solving, their cognitive flexibility when they were problem solving. And of course that's very important because in the midst of an operation things can go wrong and you want to be able to think of a good solution and be very flexible about it. And so that was, that was very interesting. So there may be circumstances where we would want to use these drugs. The big sticking problem at the moment is we don't have long-term safety data and efficacy data in healthy people. So that's missing. So until we have that, it's very difficult to recommend these drugs. So I'll talk about some of the concerns. And I have uh, we talked about the developing brain. Our brains are developing well up until uh, late adolescence, early young adulthood. Well, you know, if you're a person with ADHD and you're not functioning well at school and you've got severe ADHD, you do need a a, a treatment. But if you're a healthy person, what is the effect of putting a drug into a normal, healthy, developing brain? And we have to be concerned about that. Um, and then the other thing that I'm very concerned about is um, the dangers of buying these drugs over the internet. Most of these students are getting the drugs over the internet. And of course, you have no idea what you're purchasing. It could be anything. Um, sometimes when people analyze drugs, um, this was in the context of legal highs, not in terms of cognitive enhancers, but the pharmacist um, analyzed these drugs bought over the internet, and some were just placebo sugar pills, some were actually the uh, drug that they thought they were buying, and then some were just random things, but some also had toxic elements in them. So it's a very dangerous way to buy prescription-only drugs. 
And that's one reason I want the government to actually do these long-term um, safety and efficacy studies together with uh, the pharmaceutical industry to see if some of these are safe and then make them more widely available if they are. And then, of course, students have complained about cheating. A lot of students come up to me and they say, you know, I don't want to use these drugs, but I feel pressure put upon me to use them because I know that other people are using them and I'm, I'm worried I won't get a good mark, as good a mark as the other students. And actually, Duke is the only university that I know that actually has put on their website this very clear policy that they regard it as cheating to use these drugs. So, it's quite interesting. And I was contacted by the MHRA um, if I would make a statement um, when they were doing their seizure of these, <coughs> these smart drugs. And many of you will remember the paracetam was uh, used quite a long time ago and, and people were looking at it in terms of a treatment for Alzheimer's disease. But these new paracetams are um, much more effective than the original one, much more potent. And I was shocked to find that this drug here was entirely experimental, never been tested on humans in clinical trials. It was being sold over the internet. Now they could seize these drugs and close down this website because it was based in the UK, but of course they can't really do much about the international websites, they say. Um, so I mentioned Professor Little Helper, and, and it was very interesting checking with my colleagues about why they we're using these uh, different drugs. And this is from the uh, online survey they've been took afterwards. And I'm really showing this because, again, it illustrates the issue of coercion. So when they um, ask people, uh, do you think healthy children under the age of 16 should not be taking these drugs? 86% of people said, yes, they should not be taking these drugs. They're healthy, and they're under the age of 16. But then they said, you, would you feel pressure to give these cognitive-enhancing drugs to your children if other children at school were taking them? And 33% said that they would. So again, we have to be concerned about that as a society. So I'll just finish off with some of my newer work that I'm doing. I'm very excited about this because um, I think it's way forward. We know from uh, Till Weiss and uh, excellent work at the Institute of Psychiatry that um, cognitive training works very well for schizophrenia. So uh, the problem, and it's got a very good, so it's got a good effect size on cognition. It's a moderate effect size. But it also affects psychosocial functioning, which is terrific, and a moderate effect size. The problems with it is that there's uh, a very large dropout rate because, you know, it's quite boring to do, and you have to, you know, come into a specialized unit and so forth. And, and it's expensive as well because it's delivered by specialists. So what I wanted to do was to deliver cognitive training in a way that was motivating, normalize it to get rid of the stigma associated with the fact that it might be a treatment, and do this by making it a game, an app game. So we were able to do this, and we called it the wizard memory game, and um, we used this sort of Harry Potter theme because we figured um, most of these people that we were working with were in their sort of 20s and 30s, and we figured that this game would be appealing to them and they'd immediately grasp it. We actually spent a long time in development with the patient group, getting it so they just got it immediately, and so they enjoyed it, and we measured their, how much they enjoyed it. And we um, had them um, play the game, and what we found after that was when we did this uh, test of episodic memory that we had from the CANTAB after they'd been playing the game for eight hours over one month, was that we got improvements in performance in this episodic memory. We also found that we got improvements in their essentially functionality measures, which was very rewarding. And, and we measured how much they enjoyed it. And this is the 50% mark. And they're well over 50%, 70, 85% uh, enjoyment level. So this seems a very good way to be able to deliver effective treatment. And what we found was that uh, because the uh, functionality, we weren't sure whether the functionality was improved as an effect of the improvement in memory, or whether that was improved because of the motivation improving. And uh, of course, it could be a combination of the two, that both the memory and the motivation improved, and so the functionality improved. But um, uh, so we now uh, have technology transfer this to a games company called PIG, 
And again, this gets rid of the stigma because everybody likes to play games, and, and so now it's uh, it's it's available uh, generally for use. So uh, I'll just leave with some neuropsychological questions and neuroethical questions, and they really are about you know should we be enhancing cognition in healthy people, and who do we want to do it in if we feel it's a good thing, and should we limit it, um, and what are the implications uh, of pharmacogenomics developments, and you know maybe uh, would you boost your own brain power? And I often put it this way to you. Okay, let's just see a show of hands to those people. You know, if we tested modafinil, the government got together with the pharmaceutical industry and said, okay, this drug is now deemed to be safe and effective, how many people would take it? So it's interesting. So a lot of you wouldn't take it. Some of you would take it. And it's interesting to discuss well, why. Why would you not take it? Who won't take it? So probably some abstainers, I think, if you are. Uh, okay. <laughs> So they don't know, can't decide. Uh, well, yeah. Wasn't. yeah, but I often say, you know, it's funny because we think, you know, we, we think of ourselves because we're healthy people as functioning quite well. But then, you know, if I said to you, okay, how many of you in this room are functioning at your optimal level today? Not sleep deprived, <laughs> not stressed, <laughs> hands. <laughs> Yeah, okay, <laughs> couple. <laughs> yeah, so, so it's interesting because I often point out that we, talk, we make this distinction between restoration and enhancement. But, you know, if you're sleep deprived and then you take a, a drug like modafinil, are you restoring yourself back to where you should be or are you, are you enhancing yourself? If you're, say, in, you know, 65, 70 years old and you want to perform like you were when you were 20, are you restoring yourself back to your 20-year-old years, or are you, you know, enhancing yourself because your peers are not, uh, you're pushing yourself over and above that. And the same with other things that might, uh, might affect us. I mean, people with young children and sleep deprivation and so forth. So it's an interesting question. So um, I'll, I'll more or less leave it there, and I'll just thank my uh, collaborators and, and so forth. So thank you for your attention.